To be 100% clear, this was specifically a request to do a rumination on the DS version of this game. Now I point that out because usually when I get a request for a game that has multiple editions, it's either left to my decision to pick one, or I'm supposed to automatically pick the most modern one. You know, if they have ports or remixes or whatever. You know, if someone asked for Rumination on FF4, for example, I'd probably pay the Steam version specifically. But in this case, it, the DS version was requested. Now, it's actually been some months since that request came through. But by memory, the reason for that request, specifically being the DS version, was to talk about the unique nature of the DS and the two-screen system and how it was used for combat. The biggest thing I want to comment about that is that the combat itself was surprisingly engaging for me. The idea to basically have both of your ugh, both of your characters fully playable, but one is completely playable on, you know, the one hand, and the other is completely playable on the stylus was actually very informed. And I like the fact that a lot of the stylus attacks are functionally completely different from the control attacks. The control attacks involve mostly combo usages, trying to get to certain marks and use those to build up combos, etc., etc., Whereas down here, you have to actually drag, click, and otherwise try to physically interact with the enemies, or the player, usually Neku down below, in order to interact with stuff. It also kind of goes in uh, kind of nicely with the whole idea of the real ground versus the underground, the two sides of reality kind of interacting there. I know that's not really a literal thing, it's just kind of a metaphorical thing. I really enjoyed the nature of the playstyle, and as it happens, I already owned the DS version, so that's cool. I also want to make one quick mention here. I know that the Switch version is out, and obviously has been out by some, for some time by the time that this uh, video goes live, but it is out even now, before I recorded this. But, again, DS version. I don't even own the Switch version yet, so... Any of additional plot details or whatnot that are revealed in that are not something I'm aware of, because I actually want to go into that relatively unspoiled, so... Anywho... I also want to comment on the art style, because the art style is very, very unique. It's basically comic book style with animation. Uh, singular panels being utilized to try and tell a story. One of my favorite little tidbits, very early on in the game actually, is when it shows a backdrop and then you see like a singular panel of some feet and then another singular panel of some feet just kind of slide on and then slide off the screen, indicating how many people are walking by. Little details like that are interesting to me and evoke a very specific approach to the way they were doing this game. But I, if I'm being 100% honest, I have to actually comment on one other thing very quickly before I move on, and that's the music. I played this game on mute. <laughs> I, this is not the first time I've actually played The World Ends With You. In fact, this will be the second. Uh, or this has been, excuse me, the second. It, when I play the Switch version, because I'm pretty sure that, that has already been funded, uh, that will be the third time I play through this game. I don't like the music. <laughs> That's, you know, no offense intended to anybody who does, of course. But I found a lot of the, especially the wandering around songs, to be excessively repetitive. I didn't care for the vocal tracks. I get that's the point. Like, I feel like someone sat down and was like, all right, I want to do a story about the afterlife and fashion. <laughs> Fashion's the wrong word, but, you know, like, uh, whatever the aggregate term is for fashion, music, uh, you know, that kind of the the scene, right? The club scene, or no, that's still wrong. I don't know what to call that. I don't know what to call it. I'm sure there's at least one term for that. And so then they made this game. What I find most interesting about the construction of this game, though, is that virtually every gameplay element also has a story relevance. The pins, for example, well, first of all, the pins obviously being constructed by the different shops, which may or may not have metaphysical tangents, given the possibility of the angels being involved, which is, is something that's not really fully addressed, but let's just move on from that. 
and the fact that each of those pins and the companies that produce them also happens to do with one of the Zodiac, or Zodiac, depending on which version you prefer, uh, and the, the different animals, which is also something that's indicated based on the noise forms that a lot of people use to fight you, which is also part of their names. And what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of little attention to detail in several bits of what I would normally qualify as trivia, because none of those little details really add to the story, in my opinion. It's not like there's something that... It's like, hey, and here's some secret thing that's hiding in the background. The closest thing to that would be Joshua's name. And saying anything about Joshua at this point is kind of a spoiler anyway, so whatever. But one thing I do love about the construction of this game is that you can actually see how much this was plotted out in advance. It's actually a relatively short game, uh, which I actually usually apply as a good thing when it comes to RPGs. Not because I dislike long RPGs. I enjoy a 40-hour slog as much as anybody, as long as it's not a slog. But what I mean by that is, in my experience, people who really try to craft a very precise and well-detailed smaller RPG, shorter RPG, I should say, can do more work with what they have. It basically, effectively increasing the density and the quality rather than increasing the quantity. And the, I guess that would also be density. My words are just all over the place this morning. What do you want from me? <laughs> but I point that out because there's a lot of that in this game. For example, the entire game is spoiled by the intro. The whole thing. Every little detail is there in the intro. The red pin uh, scheme on behalf of <sighs> Kitaniji. I'm going to be struggling with these names. Please forgive me. I know they say Shibuya or Shibuya. Shibuya. Their, their emphasis on the, the vowels is very strange for me, but Shibuya. Uh, in, uh, so Kitaniji's entire plot with the red skull pins, the entire thing with how Joseph is involved with things and how he ends up killing Neku, and the fact that Neku died, and the fact that Rhyme died as a consequence of trying to... you know All of these things, all of these little details are all spoiled right in the intro, but they're all presented without real context and usually in more of a stylized way than in a literal way. Now, I do like that. But once again, it speaks to that tightly constructed narrative. You also can tell, especially playing this the second time through, you just sort of notice a lot of things, well, I, at least I did, that I didn't notice the first time. A lot of hints and a lot of inferences. Probably one of my favorites is the fact that when Niki, uh, Shiki excuse me, and Neku make, first make their pack, Joshua's in the background there, and it's just like, okay, that makes sense. Playing his own little game, as we say. I feel like I want to talk more about the gameplay, but as strange as this may sound, I don't know how to without literally showing you. One of the things I want to talk most about the gameplay, though, and I'm very curious how the Switch version is going to handle this, is I love the idea that the interface has to convey very obvious information. It goes with a lot of color coding in order to make sure that you know what you're doing, rather than literal information. Like, this is a very tightly designed UI in general, especially the HUD parts on the upper screen, which allows you to say, okay, I need to up, right, right, up, right, there we go, bam, that's exactly what I need while you're doing this. In other words, I don't know about you guys, I was never looking at either screen when I was playing. I was looking right in the middle and just kind of letting letting my peripheral grab whatever it needed to from both sides. And because of the nature of the UI, that was good. It actually worked. Again, I'm curious how that's going to work on the Switch with a singular screen. I suppose we'll see when we get there. I also want to comment on one thing that is just sort of a nature of things. This game should have been called some variant on What a Wonderful World, uh, or just A Wonderful World, or something like that. And I think that title would have worked a lot better. The World Ends With You 
doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Just, just to be as blunt as I can. Like, there's no specific or strong significance of that phrase. I could argue that there is some significance with... Uh, so, the reason I say that, obviously that's part of the, the secondary plot of the three plots that are going on at the same time in this game. Yeah, it's, it's one of those games. <laughs> but uh, what I mean specifically is the nature of how, for example... The the Red Skull Pins. God, my thoughts are all over the place this morning. I'm sorry. This is a very weird game. I'd almost call it a convoluted game because there's, there is a lot going on at the same time. And discussing how it layers on itself is going to take some work, so please bear with me here. But the, the, the Red Skull Pin plot, the entire idea of trying to create a wonderful world by presuming that the problem is the people. Remember, that's exactly what Joshua told Kitaniji. I'm going to make one more attempt at that one. The dude, the final boss, uh, as it was, it was the problem. He told them that, that the people were the problem. It wasn't the world. It wasn't the sub, subspace. It wasn't the souls. It wasn't the noise. It wasn't anything else. It was just the people. That they were the root cause. So he thinks, in his own logical manner, I've got it. Why don't I brainwash everyone to all think the same thing? Now, one of the things I find interesting is his motives on that could be inferred in one direction or another. Either the fact that he is legitimately trying to do what he, you know, he, he thinks is best, or that he thinks that everyone should do exactly what he says, that he knows what is best, and therefore he wants to be in control. And there's a little bit of a difference between those two things, because the former is far more, well, for frankly, selfless of a motivation, the desire to save reality by making it better. Whereas the second motivation is trying to make reality more like what he wants it to be, because that would be better. You can see the kind of shadings of difference there. As ever, curious what you guys think of that. Now, let's talk about Shiki. <laughs> Shiki's an interesting character to me because she arguably has only a very small amount of character growth in the game, but is so adamantly necessary towards so many other characters' uh, character growth. In, in fact, it can be argued that Shiki is the main reason that Joshua changes his name throughout the course of the game. Oh yeah, by the way, it's basically impossible to talk about this game without spoiling the hell out of everything. So just be aware of that. If you still want to play this game, that would be this would be a good time to go and stop and go do so. I still can recommend the DS version. It's still fun and interesting, as long as you can split your attention between the two screens simultaneously. That's especially mandatory when you get to the bosses. The weak one boss, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce, uh, is an excellent example of someone that just... Yeah, you, you need to be able to pay attention by that point. <sighs> Anyways, so you're going through, and Shiki... What I like most about Shiki is that she is effectively the kind of person who, on the surface, is exactly what you would think would be a perfect counterpart to Neku. But she isn't actually that. That Her, her entire surface persona and presentation is a lie. It's something that she aspires to, or affects, is actually probably a better way to put that, because of how much she desire, uh, desires, is the wrong word, how much she wants to be like uh, Eerie. Eerie? In other words, her... She thinks this is how she should act, would probably be how I would phrase that. If I had to put a finger on it. Hmm, sorry. Thought I heard something. Anyways, and as a consequence, uh, she... Well, she comes across as very fake. And you'll notice that she and Neku don't really get along particularly well early on. 
However, over the course of the game, she gets more and more accepting of herself, who she really is, and how she really is, and the general presentation of someone who is basically a dork. I shouldn't say dork, that's the wrong word, because that's kind of an insult. More like... an adorable geek. Someone who has her own perspectives, her own friendships, her own ideals, and is a legitimately idealistic person. Someone who legitimately does care about other people, someone who does legitimately want to do good by others, and yet at the same time someone who is, how do I put this as nicely as possible, is basically socially distant. It's implied several times that Ari is her only real friend, and that she's the only one she interacts with. And she still is, it's not like she doesn't like being around other people. It's not like she doesn't derive enjoyment from being around other people. It's not like she doesn't want to help other people. It's just that she's kind of over in the corner, as I myself have said several times. An introvert does not mean someone doesn't want friends. It just means they're an introvert. They don't go out expressing themselves and expounding constantly and being more of an external person than an internal person. In fact, I, I gotta be honest, I actually, I wish we had seen more of her real form, because I think it looks a lot better than her, well, than Ares' form, let's just call it what it is. But this character arc of her accepting who she really is, is very relevant because of the way it relates to the person in the middle. I'll talk more about that in a second. But the next person I want to talk about is Beat. Because Beat kind of has the opposite problem. Beat is, of course, a massive extrovert. And Beat is also someone who has a total certainty in himself when he shouldn't. See, and see, the point is, Shiki is someone who has no real certainty in herself when she should. Beat should probably learn to stop and think every now and again. And in fact, to be completely blunt, almost every one of Beat's interactions kind of makes things worse. If anything, I would actually say, as much as some people can argue the it, what, whys and wherefores of this, Beat is probably closest to your typical Sora character from over in Kingdom Hearts. In other words, someone who is legitimately nice and kind, but ultimately just kind of bludgeons his way through as, as brusquely as he possibly can to get through things. Um, it's, it shows, is what I'm trying to say. And it makes things worse several times, especially before he, you know, died. Or pseudo-died, as we find out later. Beat himself, of course, is... I have less to say about him than Shiki, because he doesn't really have a character arc either. It would be more accurate to say that his character arc is just about his general characterization. In other words, he has no character arc. He doesn't change. He just... We learn more about him and who he is and why he is throughout the course of the game. We learn what drives him. And, well, to be completely blunt, I understand the guilt he feels. Not personally, of course. Uh, but the idea of the, the kid who th basically was a kid and thought he could just do whatever he wanted to getting his little sister killed, and himself. Um, yeah, there's there's not much else to be said about that. And it's also worth noting that he gets his little sister killed uh, arguably three times, although tw twice for, for real, once in you know the real world and then once after she is erased. We'll talk more about erasure in a second, but I do, I, I do want to comment on something that I don't actually like, admittedly, but I do have to comment on it, because erasure actually does not mean cessation. I mention that because, well, for those of you who aren't aware of the term, cessation refers to being erased from existence, being completely and utterly wiped out. There's nothing left. It is actually removed from reality. Now, that is a concept. It probably doesn't exist in real life. We're not actually sure. But that is a fictional concept. 
what happens in erasure is described as that, but that's actually not accurate. Erasure is the erasure of the mind and body, but the soul actually does remain. And the soul can actually be repurposed into whatever. Uh, noise, being, you know, being consumed by noise is one of the most obvious things. But as we see in this very game, uh, Rhyme herself gets turned into a pin, and then later gets reconstituted back into a person, thanks to Joshua. Because so, so you can remold the soul as you will, basically. It's kind of a, a loose resource or currency, if you will. But the other thing that I want to say about beat, sorry for getting off the beaten path there. I, I had to get one in. Come on. He does them constantly. The one thing I do want to say about beat is the way he relates to the center character. The idea that beat is someone who... How do I phrase this? Beat is someone who... has total certainty in himself and his actions, while at the same time basically possessing an almost lack of understanding of the fact that life is complicated, that there is nuance to things, that other people don't think the same way. In this way, he kind of serves as a direct parallel to the, to the center character. Uh, so the next character I really want to talk about is Kitan, uh, Kitaniji. God, I'm Screwing up that name so much, I feel bad. I'm sorry, I'm trying. He is an interesting character because in his own right, well, as I already mentioned, his motives are the most interesting thing for me. Do you think that he is legitimately trying to help things, or do you think he's just trying to rule on high as sultan, you know, to, to paraphrase excessively? From my perspective, I would say that he is someone who basically agrees with the overall motivations and perspective of the central character, but ultimately doesn't understand them at all. What I'm trying to say is that he's probably the most alien character in the game. Most of the other characters are characters that make sense from a human perspective, even though very few of the characters in this game are currently human. He makes sense as someone, you know, you know like uh, uh, Uzuki and, uh, and uh, Koki, are both examples of characters, or is it Koki? I don't actually remember. Was, are both examples of characters who make sense. You know, their, their motives, emotions, perspectives, mindsets are all very human. But Keith Niji is probably the least human character we interact with. Someone who really seems to be seeing everything as basically a distanced formula. In other words, a lack of understanding of nuance. This is another way he's a nice parallel to beat, by the way. In fact, if you're paying attention, each of these characters kind of serve as four points of an axis for the central character. Because we have complexity and kindness, simplicity and kindness, simplicity and the absence of kindness, cruelty, I suppose, is what Kitaniji is. Which leads me to the fourth character for the central character, and that would be Neku. Sorry. I know you probably already thought I was doing this because of the fact that I refused the name of the central character. But yeah, no, the central character is Joshua. Now, I'm not to say that these other characters don't rotate around Neku in his own right, but the problem is all of this story is really about the character arc and growth of Joshua more than anything else. This is why I call him the central character. Obviously, Neku is the protagonist, and obviously he is going through a significant character arc and growth throughout the course of the game, and that is one of the main points of the game. But the relevant perspective here is that the distant alien because, again, Joshua is fairly alien in his own right, is someone who was changed and altered by his experiences, not on the macroscopic scale, but on the microscopic scale. One person and his interactions with the people surrounding him 
or would end up changing his opinion by the end and th making him think in a different direction. But I'm getting a little bit off topic. So let's talk about Neku. Neku is someone that uh, I've been like that once in my life uh, for basically one year, eh, maybe two years back as a kid. That would have been eighth and ninth grades, I believe. And in both times, it was just, you know, hands down, you know, no, everybody ignore me, blah, blah, blah. Now, what's funny about that is I'm actually a huge extrovert. Anybody who knows me uh, knows this. I'm the person who talks to strangers just because I like chatting or because I feel like they're having a bad day or maybe I want to try and make them laugh or something like that. That's me. Now, you might ask, well, why were you so like that? Well, because, well, there's other reasons for that, but basically because I didn't really know how to connect with people at that point in my life because other people didn't make as much sense to me back then. There's a reason I've spent so much of my life studying how people think and work. It's because I didn't understand, and I want to connect with people because I like making people happy. Like <laughs> I know that sounds like a dumb thing, but there you go. So there we are with Neku, and he's kind of the same way in his own right. Because the interesting thing is Neku is a bit, well, dark. But he's not evil. It's not like he thinks that the world should end. He just wants to be left alone. And he'll do whatever he has to in the moment because that's what you do. You know, Everyone hates each other, right? There's no such thing as good people. There's a reason Joshua chooses him because he chose someone who so accurately prescribed to the exact same mindset as Joshua. But only on the surface level. This is how Neku is the complex version versus uh, Kitaniji, which is the simplistic version. Kitaniji just says, oh, I'll just mind control everyone, and bam! Neku has a more developed perspective on that, and as his own interactions with other people grow and change over time, he gets to the point where he's more understanding and, and, and even appreciating the nuance and complexity of things. Neku, to use a direct parallel, even at the beginning of the game, would not be the kind of person who would come up with the red, red pin plot. That's just not a thing that he would do. He was willing to kill Shiki that one time, but he was extremely hesitant to and is legitimately freaked out when he finds out it wasn't necessary. And you can just sort of tell that that is a degree of Neku basically arguing with himself. Because Neku is also an introvert, just like Shiki is. But Neku is someone who still legitimately enjoys other people, just like Shiki does. It's just he hasn't really had an interaction with people at a sufficient level to get to that point. I also kind of like the implication for a lot of the early part of the game that Neku is, in fact, suicidal, that he actually killed himself as part of his more... Well, I don't want to call it nihilistic, but uh, let's call it his ambivalent perspective. And yet, as we learn over the course of the game, you know, that's just not him. I don't want to say it's a mask, because it's not like he's lying. It would probably be more accurate to say that he doesn't really understand himself. This is also why, if you're paying attention to the way I'm gritting these, that he is the direct opposite to Beat, because Beat knows exactly who he is and wants to embrace it as much as he can, whereas Neku has no idea who he is and is very hesitant to embrace it even when he finally discovers it. This also, and all, all of these connecting points really connect to each other. It's a nice little diagram with, of course, Joshua in the middle, which is what I want to talk about next. Joshua, to me, feels... I, I mentioned Kitaniji is the the alien one, but Joshua feels like the one who is most disconnected. The one who... Well, let me put it to you this way. And I know this is going to get into slightly into controversial territory, so hear me out. How many of you pay attention to the news? No, not, not, not Huey Lewis. 
the news, the whole idea of, and then there was this horrible murder, and then these all these people died, and then these people died, and then these people were worse than dead, and it's all horrible, and everything is dark and bleak forever, right? It is easy to get into the mindset, and I, I know a lot of people have had this problem, uh, of thinking that everything is horrible. That all of life is always this giant trash bin that happens to be on fire, and that everything is just terrible and it's never getting any better. Now, whether that's true or not is more a matter of opinion and facts that I don't have access to. But I mention that because it's easy to get into that mindset when you're exposed to that. And it is our nature as human beings to pay more attention to negative things than positive things, which is, is an unfortunate truth. So, to use an old parallel, if you have 50 people, uh, 49 people telling you you're awesome, and one person tells you you suck, which one do you think you're going to remember more? This is Joshua. I say he's disconnected, but he'd be more accurate to say that he's looking at the macroscopic scale and forgetting about the microscopic scale that he legitimately wants to help other people and make things better, like Shiki. That he tends to go through things without really thinking them through properly, like Beat. The fact that he is willing to manipulate and, and dissect this entire area with the intent of absolutely erasing the entire city and or region, talk about that later, like Kitaniji. And the fact that ultimately none of this is really him, that there is actually a core to him that actually wants to be friends with people and wants to actually believe that things are better, like Neku. All four of these characters rotate around Joshua. I say rotate, that's actually wrong. Uh, or uh, are positioned around Joshua. Stationary orbit, there we go, stationary orbit. And all of them kind of show, show their own perspectives on him. And of course, throughout the course of the game, all of them have their own influence on him, directly and indirectly, Neku being the most obvious direct one. But as I mentioned earlier, it is Shiki who is probably the most influential overall on Joshua's perspective. The fact that she managed to allow Neku to be himself, which is what allows Joshua to, to be more open and expressive when it comes to his own nature and the nature of the world, well, the city around him. This brings me to the nature of the setting in general, which is the final thing I have to talk about. I don't know if there's a proper Japanese word for this, but I look at this as a purgatory. Now, to explain why I would mean that by that very clearly, this is the waiting room. This whole thing, the Reapers game, the Reapers themselves, the composer, the conductor, the producer, all of this is the waiting room for the afterlife. As is mentioned a few times, most of these people are not actually dead. They are dying, to use the Pirates of the Caribbean parallel. And all of these people are basically being judged to decide what happens to them. They could be erased, which again basically means that it's just their soul is left over to be recycled into whatever or consumed, as the case may be. They can be, uh, they could become part of the management, the bureaucracy, if you will, of the, the purgatory here. Or, and the most up, up, upper end of the class, they can actually move on to the real afterlife. We know that all of this is within this tier, and that, that there's angels and other that up here, up in the actual afterlife, you know, far above any of this, which is the, the goal of just about anyone going through this, other than the people, of course, who have their own internecine goals. And I do like the, the weird politics of this purgatory. There's the players who attack and feed on the noise. Well, actually, I guess, I suppose to really start this, we have to start with the real people who are influenced by the players and the reapers. And the real people are also influenced by the noise, 
And the noise is something that preys on and is preyed upon by the players who prey on and are preyed upon by the reapers who are under the jurisdiction of the game masters who also may be reapers and who are ultimately under the, conduction, uh, the, the purview of the conductor who is the immediate officer in charge of managing everything at the purview of the composer who is the actual judge who has the final say on what happens to any given person that goes through here and all of that is underneath the purview of the producer who is supposed to make sure that everything is going as it should and is supposed to not get involved. Now, I do like the, the weird politics of this. I guess we could call this an afterlife, even though I'm kind of making a distinction between the afterlife and this. Mostly because, again, this is the waiting room. I mean, you could go back to life. Apparently, that's probably the, the, the rarest of the possibilities. But you can go back to life, or something else can happen. You know, you can go ahead and end up being elevated to the actual afterlife. Or you could be eaten. That, that's, that's a good ending, right? But I bring all of this up because... What we find out, and based on all of the hidden reports and all that fun stuff in this game, this, near as I can tell, is a fully regional affair. Now, explain what I mean by that. Near as I can tell, each region, and I'm going to keep using that word, has its own uh, completely secular approach to this thing. That's secular is the wrong word. Uh, cellular approach to things. Completely disparate and separate from all of the other regions. Now, in this case, the region's a city, and that makes sense because this city has a lot of people in it, especially in the modern era. But the implication I get very strongly is that these regions are kind of morphic. Like, if you were to rewind time a few thousand years, it wouldn't be the whole Shibuya city, city, right? It would probably be the entire Shibuya region. The idea being that a general aggregate of a number of people, or the population, is what actually determines a region. Thus, most cities would probably be regions by themselves, whereas huge tracts of countryside are probably uh, a separate region. And the implication is there that each of these regions follow their own rules. Now, this is also something that's very heavily hinted at in the game. And the, because all of those rules are set by the producer and the composer. The composer is the one who decides, okay, again, the composer is the judge. So the composer says, anyone within my region, if they die, I'm going to do this. And in so doing this, this will determine who gets to move on and who gets to do what and why and wherefore. Based on, now, I'm going to stop there because near as I can tell, that's the only thing that's standardized across regions, that each region has a producer an angel, or fallen angel in Shibuya's case, where someone, you know, who's supposed to keep an eye on things, and then a composer who sets up the rules for exactly how they determine who gets further up. It's all nicely organized and bureaucratical, and I have to admit, I find the, the entire concept fascinating in its own right. But this also significantly implies that everything below the producer and the composer rate is dependent on the region. So the conductor, the reapers, the reapers game, all of that is exclusive to Shibuya. In other words, Joshua came up with all that. Now, we learn a couple of reasons why he does all of this, but what I find interesting is he makes a situation which is fairly hostile overall, and yet at the same time also does a thing that's in deliberately intended to try and make people question why it is they like things or have certain preferences or whatever. The whole reason that his entry fee into the Reaper's game is something that you value most is because he wants you to understand why you value that and to, to, to reckon it or reconcili reconciliate with your own self to, to comprehend that, to appreciate it, you know? And that makes a degree of sense in its own right. But then he also sets up a situation in which, as a player, the moment the game starts, you are in imminent danger. You are being attacked by tons of stuff, which you basically can't do anything about. You can be erased very quickly and very easily by a lot of people. Now, you're not actually in super danger the first day. I noticed that as actually a little thing. So you kind of have like a, a breather period. 
But that first day is basically every player desperately trying to find a partner. This is something else that Joshua would have set up as a consequence of my interpretation of the rule structure here. Because, well, that makes sense, doesn't it, that Joshua wants people to interact with each other. Again, remember, he's got this ambivalent perspective, but that's not how Joshua really feels. It is instead more accurate to say that Joshua has become distanced from what he really feels, just like Neku, as I said earlier with the, the quad points. So in other words, he wants people to group up. He wants them to have legitimate teamwork. He wants them to help. So he designs the rules, so you basically have to. You make a partnership, then you, not only can you fight the noise, which I'll talk about in a minute, but also you have the ability to learn and grow and be a better person. Remember, the entire purpose of this isn't fun. It's not the political side of things, although there is politics. As I've said, many of the, the players want to be reapers. Many of the reapers want to be promoted up to conductor or e even beyond that, etc., etc. The whole real hard, you know, the baseline purpose behind all this is the judging. What do we do with those who died? That's the whole point of this. It's something that needs to be managed. So that's the purpose of this game. So we'll see how you handle it. <laughs> how do you handle your team mate? How do you work with the Reapers? And, oh, of course, I suppose I should mention now, of course, the Reapers side of things in this. Because I mentioned how the game is very hostile to new players, but it's also very hostile to new Reapers. A new Reaper only has a few days of existence before they're erased, too. They have to go and erase players. That's how they elongate their, their timeline. So... Reapers are designed to, basically built into their system, that they have to kill, let's just call it what it is, players as, as often and as fast as possible in order to make sure that they continue to exist at all. And if they do so, they'll eventually be promoted based on their skill and blah, 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 blah. And the players have to basically do everything they can to struggle and continue and exist and killing the Reapers as well. Oh, and by the way, most of the Reapers, if not all of the Reapers, are former players. Because plenty of people will win a week's encounter, and at the end of having won such an encounter, one of the most common things that can happen to that player is they then become part of the system. They become a Reaper. It's all very nicely dog-eat-dog kind of a thing, or Ouroboros, or Ouroboros, if you prefer, kind of a thing, right? Om nom nom. <laughs> of course, what I find most interesting about all of this, so the players have to endure, the Reapers have to endure, the conductor is in charge of basically just managing things. And, of course, the game master thing is fairly simple. The game master manages a given week's activities. But I mention this because <laughs> I really feel like a lot of the specific reasons why several of these games we see is at the purview of the conductor rather than the purview of the composer. Because, well, as we see a couple of examples of this, the composer doesn't have to adhere to his own rules of his own game. Remember, the game was made at his purview, or the, at their purview, in case there's female composers out there. So the idea is that the composer just says, well, this is the rules I've set up, but I'm going to make an exception in that case. Which actually makes a lot of sense to me. This is actually probably one of the biggest reasons why Joshua, in this case, decides to go ahead and reincarnate, or reconstitute, I guess it would be a better way to put that, uh, Rhyme, and actually give her her life back. After all, remember, her soul was still out there. Still exists, because of the nature of how these souls are. And it wasn't eaten by noise, so... But I said I'd talk about noise, and that's the last thing I want to talk about, because the noise thing is just kind of weird. The most obvious parallel for the noise is demons. I don't mean like the Burning Legion or typical Faerunian demons. I mean the more classical you know, archetype of what a demon is, a, a fell spirit that is designed to try and invoke bad things. You know, 
It is implied, although never stated outright, that the, the noise are the biggest reasons for things like psychotic outbursts or you know, murders or you know, uh, excessively violent or criminal behavior or mental illnesses or the inability to think straight. You know, all those little malaises that influence people in the world are implied to be a consequence of the noise. Now, what I find most interesting about that is near as I can tell, there's no real concrete explanation for what the noise actually is or why. Now, we know that there is one type of noise that's very artificial. That's the taboo noise. And that's part of his whole plot, which I just kind of stopped, so I'm not even sure what's going on with that one. Math man, you know who I'm talking about. But I mention that because I find myself wondering if the, the noise itself is a natural or artificially occurring phenomenon. The argument could be had that the noise has always been a part of the world and that the various methods that the angels are using in order to allow the composers and producers in order to, to manage their regions is a specific method to combat the noise. Because, remember, one of the things we know that the noise does is it eats soul. And thus, if a noise completely consumes someone's soul, well, at that point, they are basically fully gone. You know, cessated, as I would say. There was one entry that was talking about how a noise can be defeated and the soul goes back, but it, it, even the entry itself didn't make a lot of sense, so I'm not sure what to make of that. So I'm going to speculate, because it's like, they feel euphoria and then they're gone. I, I, what? Anyways, the point is, I'm speculating here, the idea that the noise is basically, uh, let's call it the bacteria of the afterlife. Its entire purpose is to break down and to deconstruct things so that it doesn't pile up and become a huge issue. Thus the noise being the cleaning bots of, of, of the afterlife. Again, whether this is a natural or artificially occurring thing, that's the question that really makes me wonder personally. And when I say artificial, I don't mean like the taboo noise. I mean like as in someone originally designed the, the, the noise, similar to how a composer can design a reaper and say, all right, go. I don't know. I'm very curious about this. But at the same time, one of the implications, and this is getting a little bit into persona territory here, is the idea that the noise is kind of a natural byproduct of the people. So to explain this, and this is pure theory at this point, the idea might be that rather than the noise being the cause of humanity's problems, humanity's problems cause the noise. And thus the noise itself is a byproduct of all of those horrible things that I mentioned earlier in humanity, and thus is something that is produced naturally in an unnatural manner, if that makes any sense. I'm not actually sure which of these I prefer. I kind of like the idea of the noise being the bacteria. That just kind of appeals to me for some reason, especially given the more structured setup that this whole thing has. And if anything, one of the things I want to see most is like another region's rules. Like, what do they do there? You know, I, I know that another day kind of covers that, but again, I didn't actually play that. I guess that's all I've got to talk about. This is actually a pretty fun game to play again. It'll be interesting to play it a third time, because I'm pretty sure that premiere run's already been funded. But regardless, I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.